Hey, Jericho. Hey. Welcome back to, I, I mean, it's just been a week, but it's starting to feel like a week is like a month. That's how I feel all the time. Really? Yeah. yeah. The year, it was like kind of a cute start and now it's like, oh, it's real. we're in the year. Mm-hmm. The year's happening. Oh my God. I woke up this morning in my parachute sheets mm-hmm. and uh, it was kind of blissful. I did not want to come here and I love coming here, but... Uh, I just installed some of their sheets in my bed and it's like, oh my God, don't want to move. Relatable. Yeah. Usually you think like a cute brand is like, oh, you know, maybe their product sucks, but the brand's cute. But nope, everything they make is so soft. Mm-hmm. And as you like to say, chic. It's so chic. Your gray sheets are <laughs> chic. I mean, Parachute is beyond organic and it kind of feels like it. Their sheets are free of all those gnarly, harmful chemicals and synthetics, and, you know, synthetics make you sweat, so. Mm-hmm. And they get cozier with every wash instead of That's true. the opposite, which a lot do. So if you want to know what I'm talking about, because Parachute is not the thing that falls out of the sky that keeps you from hitting the ground, it's a startup based in Venice. Visit ParachuteHome.com, that's P-A-R-A-C-H-U-T-E-H-O-M-E, dot com slash girl boss again free shipping and returns on parachutes very comfortable stuff like bath linens bath robes bath linens means towels basically but like i think they have slippers and of course sheets uh, they offer a 60 night trial so sleep dry yourself off wear your bathrobe around your house if you don't like it send it back Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Carly Shortino is a sex and relationship writer based in New York. She's the founder of Slut Ever, a website that explores sexuality both through humor and intellect. She started writing Slut Ever while living in London in her early 20s. I started this blog spot, barely even knowing what that meant, as a way to share my thoughts and ideas about my living situation and squatting. I intended the audience essentially just to be people I lived with, like the 10 other people I lived with. And then... You know, it was early social media. Facebook had just started and people started sharing it. And, you know, if I got like 50 people to look at in a day, I was like, whoa, so many people are reading my writing. And it really inspired me to keep doing it. And now in her early 30s and living in New York City, Carly continues to explore all manner of between the sheets topics on her blog, as well as in a monthly Vogue column called Breathless. I find myself very naturally interested and curious about sexuality. I think it's like a driving force for a lot of people. It's been hugely a driving force for me. It feels overwhelming sometimes. You know, I prioritize relationships in my life. Romantic relationships, sexual relationships are important to me. I think sexuality has been a huge way in which I've like found independence, rebelled, been provocative. A lot of self-discovery moments in my life have come from sex. She's also the creator and host of a documentary series on Viceland. And this week, she released her debut book called, surprise, Slut Ever, Dispatches from a Sexually Autonomous Woman in a Post-Shame World. I've never approached writing as like an objective journalist or tried to do that, to sit on the sidelines and think and say, what do I think? What is my, you know, how do I report on this in an objective way? I've always just been like, I find this thing interesting Let me sort of throw myself into a situation and write about my experience. Today, she'll talk to us about sexuality, relationships, and the work she's doing to promote a shame-free world. But first, we have Jericho here, editorial director at girlboss.com. And what's the Jericho segment? It's a career tree map for the career indecisive. Oh, we have a career (laughs) tree map for the career indecisive. Tell me more about the career tree map, Jericho. Well, it was created by our illustrious editor, Dana, and art director, Chloe. And 
you know, everybody wants to do those little like maps or decision tests where they figure out what they want to be when they grow up. And this is literally that. But because Dina is obsessed with Broad City, hmm. it's literally inspired by Broad City and all the questions relate to whether you're an Abby or an Alana career-wise. Ooh. So what can I do? Am I going to choose my career or can I give advice? You can choose your career right here, right now. Ooh, let's if you're it. willing to answer these questions. Okay. When it comes to my work ethic, I consider myself more of an Abby or Alana. Abby is kind of like more straight edge and Alana's more kind of like off with the fairies. I'm Alana. Okay. I think Alana should pursue a career as internet sales. She really understands how to game the system or working at the co-op and embedding herself in the community. Internet sales. Agree. Okay. You have to follow the arrow and it says you're the magnate, which kind of seems relevant. See you in the C-suite. You've got a passion for entrepreneurship and the business side of things. Whether you're looking to run a company of your own one day or climb the corporate ladder, you've got a knack for keeping your eye on the prize and fostering growth in whatever industry you choose. Ooh, That was easy. (laughs) So if I'm out there and kind of a mess, I could either be brilliant or really doomed. Mm -hmm. Maybe neither, depending on how much I'm willing to take accountability and look in the mirror and learn, right? All right. That's the lesson of Alana. (laughs) Before you leave, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about something that I'm very fond of, brushing my teeth. I love my Quip electric toothbrush. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electronic brushes. And there's little pulses that tell you when to switch sides. And it comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and then sticks to use as a cover So it's a really mobile electric toothbrush because a lot of the time you have these really big bulky bases for them and Mm -hmm. you can't travel with them, but theirs just has a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks and is able to be used as a cover. So when you throw it in your bag, it has a cover already attached to it. And you should replace the head of your electric toothbrush, which I think a lot of us forget to do because the thing seems permanent. They have a subscription that refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Not bad. And it's a toothbrush that got named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year. Whoa. Yeah, beat that. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash girlboss right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash girlboss, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash girlboss. And now, sex and relationships writer, producer, and founder of Slut Ever, Carly Shortino. I grew up in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley. It's about an hour and a half north of New York City. And um, I feel like I'm always talking about this, but it feels relevant in the context of being now a slut writer, is that I grew up in a really conservative Catholic family. And it was a small town, like very totally normal middle class upbringing. I guess normal is probably not the right word to use, but Mm -hmm. it felt very loving parents, but very strict, you know, like don't have boys over the house, don't have sex till you're married, try and join the army when you graduate high school so that, you know, your college can be paid for for free. A very kind of regimented upbringing to an extent. And that I think is a huge factor in what I now defined as being like a rebellious quality because I think I felt a little bit trapped in that environment. Yeah. I had a similar environment where it was like, boys can't come over. Like in sixth grade, a boy came over to give me a handwritten note on his go-kart and he like pulled up to my house to hand me like a handwritten note. And my parents were like so offended that like this boy had come to our house. I remember like begging to go to like a boy's birthday party and then like Oh, my, my, my mom's listening. Sorry. But like, <laughs> like, like criminalizing like a sixth grader trying to go to like a boy's birthday party where they literally have goodie bags. Like, <laughs> what are we going to do, mom? And I was an only child. So it was like extra, extra lonely. Did your parents talk about sex at all? 
In the context of this is something that you shouldn't be having, my parents, to be fair to them, have liberalized quite a bit since my upbringing. They were really religious when I was younger. Like my mom was a religious education teacher and my dad was a member of the Knights of Columbus, which is sort of this all-male Catholic church organization. And it was like church every week, very religious grandparents. But I don't know. They, it was... I sort of got the sex talk in the context of my mom was really obsessed with the Eternal Word Network, which was the like the God Channel on TV, essentially. And she would always watch this. She was like obsessed with the show called Mother Angelica, which was basically just like a talk show where this eighty-something-year-old nun named Mother Angelica just like gave sermons, essentially on like this is why you should wait to have sex. Like this is you know just like rules for life, and. My sex talk literally came in the form of watching this nun explain why chastity was of value while my mother like sat next to me and sort of like nodded at me being like, she used her sort of as like a surrogate for giving me the talk. Wow. Yeah. Did they succeed in keeping you from having sex until marriage or <laughs> clearly yes. not? And the end of the story. <laughs> uh, no, but like at what point were you like, uh, I think I want to do this thing and I think it's called sex. Well, I think that sex was a form of rebellion and provocation for me from a really young age for that reason. Um, like there's a, this amazing Camille Paglia quote that I love and she's talking about Madonna and they're both, they both grew up in sort of like Roman Catholic families and which is like Madonna has a good keen Catholic girl sense of transgression because like subversion needs limits to violate. And I like that idea where it's like when everything is a boundary, you obviously feel compelled to break those boundaries. Whereas if it's kind of like, do whatever you want, maybe it seems less tempting. And mm -hmm. so if someone's like, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, like, obviously, I'm going to think about having sex. Because <laughs> like, if it was just like, a yeah, explore as you want to, I might, it might have felt like less tempting. Yeah. So I think not to like blame my parents conservatism for for having such an interest in it, but I do think that it was a factor. But then I wasn't like so totally crazy in high school. I was uh, sort of normal. I lost my virginity at 16 along with a lot of my friends, but I did sleep with a handful of people in high school. Um, I think I got like a little sort of hungry in that way where I was like, oh, after I had sex for the first time, it wasn't like, okay, I know what sex is like. I would kind of felt like, oh, I know what sex is like with that one guy, but like, what's it like with someone older? What's it like with someone from Europe or whatever. You know? <laughs> What's it like with someone from Europe? I don't know. I slept with a foreign exchange student and it wasn't good. <laughs> Funny. Speaking of Europe, you moved to London when you were 19. Yeah, I was, I was 18. I just, right after I graduated high school, essentially, I moved there to go to college, like ostensibly. My dad really wanted me to go to West Point, which is this military college. And I was just kind of like, oh my God, I just want to get as far away. <laughs> I just want to put an ocean between me and that, that idea. So... I found this exchange program. I was studying theater when I was younger, and I found the exchange program through a local college near me where they send you away your first year of college to go to this theater program in London. And so I, yeah, I'd never, I got a passport. I'd never left the country before and moved to London with, you know, ostensibly to go to college, but I, after one semester, I was just like, I'm not going to go to college. <laughs> and I you just stayed in London? I stayed in London for about six and a half years. Wow. And I was living in a, like a, I didn't have any money. So I, when you, when you're 18, you like move 5,000 miles away. You don't have any money. You don't have any responsibilities. You don't have like a job. So I moved into this sort of squatted art commune. So I was living in for free, rent free for over six years in this. Nice. Abandoned, various abandoned warehouses with no heating or hot water, which is not something I could probably do again, but I think it was a learning experience. When you're young, I think you can tolerate things like that. You can tolerate like, anything. You kind of can, right? That's yeah. like the time to put yourself through hell or hope the world puts you through hell because it just gets harder. I know. As you get increasingly comfortable, it's so much It's so much more difficult to regress in terms of like levels of comfort or, or income or things like that. So... We were paying literally no rent, um, and we were free. We identified as freegans, which in hindsight is very embarrassing, but you know at the time felt transgressive. And we did a lot of dumpster diving. So you were go, you reading like Crime Think? I wasn't. You weren't. I wasn't you reading know, like a, pretty much anything. Like were you? you it wasn't like an anarchist philosophy. Like 
it was sort of a very shallow level anarchist philosophy. So, you know, we would like hang out in, in squatting, squatter anarchist bookstores yeah. and claim squatters' rights. And I think that we liked the idea of anarchy without actually having sort of a greater knowledge of any of those social movements. You know what I mean? I mean, I was like 19 through 23. Um, I had a phase. I never squatted, but I went to anarchist book fairs and starting in high school the anarchist book fair in san francisco and lived with a bunch of crusty people and went to earth first rendezvous and all this shit when i was like 18 or whatever but yeah um, it's kind of sec it is sexy like the guys that it is right (laughs) i like that kind of uh the aesthetic of the anarchist aesthetic i can't like (laughs) smell people that smell like that anymore but i didn't mind it then what was your hair like? Tell me about your haircut. <laughs> oh my god, I looked crazy. I looked like I was in a Courtney Love costume. Like I was, I had really bleach blonde hair that looked like a helmet, kind of, you know, with the bangs and a bob. And I had like um, half of my head, like the under an undercut shave. I you know knew, what I mean? I knew part of it was shaved. Right, like the Alice Delisle sort of undercut <laughs> shave, and. On the undercut, I would use a Sharpie and draw leopard print. Hmm. And then I would Sharpie my makeup. So I would use like a red Sharpie and Sharpie my lipstick and a black Sharpie and Sharpie like in- intense eyeliner. And it would stay on for like three days. That's kind of cool. It's probably not good for your skin. It's definitely not good for your skin, but it doesn't even matter when you're in your no. late 20s. Not that I, in my head at the time, I was actively trying to like subvert any norms of beauty, but I wish I could access that part of myself again where I just was like, I don't care about looking conventionally pretty. Mm-hmm. Whereas like now I have to admit to myself that I do care about that. You know, you do care about it. Like I feel like once you've rejected it though and decide to invite a convention back, it becomes yours. Mm-hmm. And when you accept it at face value, it belongs to everybody else. And like what you choose to do kind of belongs to everybody else. So mm-hmm. like I think it's – I think you're probably just as liberated – you know, having a half shaved head as you are wearing like real lipstick, you know, that wipes off at the end of the day. But it's, I think it's like all about where you're like, where you're coming from and your like relationship with yourself and understanding of, of yourself and your own confidence. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's a hassle to shave your legs and I do, I do that now. Yeah. It's kind of, I still feel that clothes are huge for me in terms of being able to express myself. And I never, and I love wearing clothes that are noticeable or whatever, interesting or different. But I think that in that time of my life where if you don't, because I didn't have an outlet for my creative expression, I wasn't really a writer. I wasn't making things that I felt were of value, that clothes for me were the way of advertising to world like, advertising to the world I'm an interesting person mm-hmm. and then as you get more of your creative fulfillment from like writing or designing clothes or whatever or having a business whatever you're doing that you there's like less need for that type of expression but I don't know if I'm oversimplifying it but that's like my impulse no I agree like you're you know it's like you want people to know that you're different like at a certain age like clothes can be your calling card but also subculture I think has probably changed a lot like Mm -hmm. I don't think subculture exists in the same way that it did like every like Juno is an independent movie like everything is like indie and Mm -hmm. like there was kind of a time where there there were like real like subcultures happening and I know there still are but um maybe maybe not as like the, I, I feel like they don't like the internet has made like everything cool and everyone cool yeah. in a way that like, and not that that was cool or I'm cool or we were cool, but, but like, yeah, I think it's, those things have just gotten a little, um, like diluted because we're exposed to so much now and what's weird isn't like as weird as it used to be. Or I, I thought it was like crazy that people started wearing jumpsuits again, like onesies, like, wow, like modern women wearing a jumpsuit. Wait, like that's sexy like how did they how did we accept that I think it's great I'm wearing a jumpsuit right now (laughs) but I remember when they came back into style I was like wow like people really surprise me I don't anyway I don't I don't know what that illustrates (laughs) so you didn't work in London so I did to an extent I did odd jobs I was a 
bartender at a pub and then I got paid so little I think I got paid four pounds fifty an hour and then at one point I realized I would go out clubbing a lot and I realized that I could actually find more money on the ground at nightclubs <laughs> if I spent just like 30 minutes at the end of the night like sweeping the floor near the bar than I did at my job so I quit my job and and then I was I worked as a booker at a at a bar like a club type thing like booking bands and DJs for a while you know like a couple days a week and then I started writing when I was around 21 22 I was you know writing freelance for vice as one does I was writing a a lot for a magazine that magazine dazed and confused so things like that but I mean I think my annual salary was probably around five thousand (laughs) dollars a year and it was like I felt very fi- fine living on that. $5,000 with like almost zero in overhead. Yeah, so. exactly. And that's when Carly started writing Slut Ever. It all began in London as a personal diary that detailed her experiences living in a squat. I started my blog in 2007. So there wasn't a famous blogger then. I, I feel so lucky that I called my blog Slut Ever from the beginning because it was just a total fluke. It wasn't a blog about sex. It was a way for me that I imagined for me to practice my writing because I was like, okay, I want to become a journalist. How do I do that? And I was living in this squad at the time and I started this blog spot, barely even knowing what that meant, as a way to share my thoughts and ideas about my living situation and squatting. I intended the audience essentially just to be people I lived with, like Mm -hmm. the 10 other people I lived with. And then... You know, it was early social media. Facebook had just started and people started sharing it. And, you know, if I got like 50 people to look at in a day, I was like, whoa, so many people are reading my writing. And it really inspired me to keep doing it. It wasn't a sex blog at the time, though. It was primarily about squatting and my living situation and just sort of like my personal ideas. But because I've always been found sex interesting and I've been curious about it, there was sexual content. But the blog didn't really become sexual like primarily sexual until I would say about three years in, um, I moved to New York and I was 24 and I need, it was, you know, I needed to get a job. I had to pay rent for the first time ever in my life. I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have qualifications or a resume of any kind. And so I started assisting a dominatrix for income. Basically she paid me $50 an hour to sort of sit and help her run her business. And, that's when my writing started focusing on sex because it became, it just became really interesting to me. I would write about her dungeon, what went on. I would interview her clients and it really sort of piqued my interest in the psychology around fringe sexual behavior and I don't know, weird fantasies or taboo. And after that, I pretty much streamlined the website to be sexuality. And it sounds like initially it was a little bit as like a voyeur unless as, as like a participant is, has that changed or do you study sex? Like what's your relationship with sex is, is slut ever personal is, you know, from assisting a dominatrix to where you are today. Like what's changed about your relationship with sex? Yeah, I think that's a good question that I asked myself because I think that I'm misinterpreted a lot as being just like sex expert, sex expert. And it's like, I do not identify as that in any way, shape or form. I I need a relationship expert to help me. You know, I think that I didn't study journalism. I didn't study writing. I've never been good with objectivity or like the idea of that. I'm never, I've never approached writing as like an objective journalist or tried to do that, to sit on the sidelines and think and say, what do I think? What is my, you know, how do I report on this in an objective way? I've always just been like, I find this thing interesting. Let me sort of throw myself into a situation and write about my experience. So I've always been just like genuinely driven by my own curiosity. And I like the idea that my writing is like a question mark rather than a period, you know, where I'm not really trying to tell anyone what to do or be prescriptive or make an assessment about anything. It's kind of just like, what does this mean? Why do people like this? Like, why do I like this? And I find myself very naturally interested and curious about sexuality. I think it's like a driving force for a lot of people. It's been hugely a driving force for me. It feels overwhelming sometimes. You know, I prioritize relationships in my life. Romantic relationships, sexual relationships are important to me. Um, I think sexuality has been a huge way in which I've like found independence, rebelled, been provocative. A lot of self-discovery moments in my life have come from sex. Like 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. It sounds kind of cheesy, but I think that's true. Yeah. I um, I was a stripper in Portland for a little while. Oh, my God. That's so, like, and, um, where I grow <laughs> I know. And, and, I, and, I, and that, for me, it was like I went from being afraid of, like, turning the lights on. Like, a guy, like being in, like, a lit room with, like, a guy, one guy, like, making out or something to like being on a stage in front of like a bunch of strangers like fully nude and once you kind of rip that band-aid off and like you have like this place that's your own and there's like there are boundaries that for me were always like upheld in this place it's a fun kind of feeling of power and like a place to like explore like your confidence and like relationship with your body and just have fun. Like you might as well be by yourself. Like for me, it was just like, Oh, I get to listen to music that I like and dance around naked. I would do that at home anyway. I could never do the Like, uh, like I don't have a lot of upper body strength. <laughs> so I just kind of like shuffled around and like disco danced. And- I feel like Portland stripping for some reason. I feel like in that, in that city specifically that they don't expect you to be able to hang upside down. There's a lot of women who do and they're really good at it. But yeah, it's like, it's like working at Starbucks in Portland. It's like the most, yeah, at least, I mean, there's more strip clubs per capita in Portland than anywhere in the, I think world maybe, or definitely the country. So it's really like a pretty normal thing to be doing. But for me, it was, I don't know, it was like pretty formative, like important yeah, like how do you make the decision to do it? Because it is even if you're in a sort of feminist community where it's like, you know, there's mm-hmm. a feminist component to the sex work, it's still stigmatized. For me, it was like I didn't. It wasn't like a well-known thing. Like I did it. I didn't do it for a super long time either. I probably did. I don't know, maybe like five or six months. Like I was never like ashamed of it. I was like, oh, this is cool. Like I. It fit into my life at the time. I was dating an alcoholic fry cook. <laughs> but for me, like, I've never identified with the word slut. Like, I'm kind of actually really prudish and, like, probably had sex with, like, three people in the last decade. I mean, I was also married and whatever and was, like, 19 when I started having sex. Like, it was just, like, way, it was, like, kind of, like, way too late. And then I was, like, stripping, like, I think a year later probably. Yeah. Speaking of being slut, do you consider yourself a slut? Yeah, so I was going to start talking about sluttiness. I was like, good segue. I do, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, I have for a long time. Women may be called sluts for any number of reasons, including being outsiders, early developers, victims of rape, or just because they're the target of someone's revenge. Often the labels have nothing to do with sex. Movements such as Slut Walk have been increasing in popularity and call for an end to rape culture, victim-blaming, and slut-shaming. Part of what my book is about is redefining the idea of the slut because I think that that you don't have to – for me, being a slut is not about having like a high body count, so to speak. I don't think that you have to have a high number of sexual partners to be a slut because what's crazy is that in our society, women get called a slut while they're still virgins sometimes. You know what I mean? Like the, the oh, yeah. sort of dictionary definition of a slut would be a derogatory term for someone who has many sexual partners or is like out of control – Mm-hmm. in some way but this the term slut is thrown around so liberally in our society it's gone rogue to an extent women get called a slut because they're just openly sexual because they talk about sex because they whatever like they're a stripper because they are a dominatrix because they send a top a selfie to someone even though they've never had sex before so in within the feminist movement there's been um like a divide for a long time about what should be done with the word slut right some people say argue that we should eradicate the use of the word altogether because it's it links women to their sort of sexual relationships to men because it's a way that women have been put down for a long time just because it's negative like so we should just get rid of it and then there's another camp that believes that we should reclaim the word and i and i align more with that camp because i think that it's naive to think that we'll be able to erase the word from the social you can't lexicon. erase words you can't and you can't ban bossy <laughs> you can't right <laughs> the word girl is like not that it's like actually not derogatory like, <laughs> like right and like your girl boss is an exact is the same thing as slut ever, right? It's a reclaiming of a term that had, for a while has been used to to harm a specific community. Yeah. It doesn't mean you can't be a woman. Like, girl right. boss isn't, like, reductive. It's actually not literal, you know? It's like, yeah. It's like, girl whatever. <laughs> and it's tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. And it's, and it's fun, and there's levity in it. And I hope that, you know, that I could be part of doing the same thing with slut because I think that reclaiming a word... What it does is it gives the word so much less power to harm mm-hmm. if you 
if you like you can hijack a word essentially like that's been done historically to many words like fag and queer and a lot of racial derogatory slang fat fat right so if there's people if you're a young girl and you get called a slut that can be tormenting hugely tormenting but then if you have an idol in the media who's like yeah i'm a slut it's great i love it it's like Mm -hmm. makes me feel very powerful even just that one piece of information or that like one clip you saw on youtube might make it hurt a little bit less Mm -hmm. and i think and i and i you know i try to redefine the word in the book as being a slut as being a person who seeks out visceral experiences through sex who sees sex as something that's like positive and added additive to their life and that and just something that they want to explore and have curiosity in. You were a dominatrix at some point. Yeah, so I was I was assisting this dominatrix, and then I started um, being her like sloppy seconds in terms of if she got offers from clients who she didn't want to see because it was you know half an hour or they just didn't they weren't offering enough money or whatever. I would be the kind of like, but you could see my assistant type mm-hmm. of thing, and I see I saw a handful of clients on my own, not many. Mm-hmm. It never, I was never very good at it. Like, I'm not very naturally dominant. I didn't care. I was the most apathetic dominant. What did you do? Did you just like, they walk in the room. Like, what do you do? You spit on them. Like, do you say like, what would you like me to do to you? Like, do they all have a thing that you know, like walking in that like they're expecting you to do? Like, is there an intake form? Like, how does it work? The, there literally is an intake, an intake form. It's more, I think people misinterpret BDSM or like the idea of a dominatrix is just like this sadistic bitch who just does whatever she wants whatever she feels like at that moment where it's so much more curated than that it's kind of like any sort of provider of any kind there would be an email exchange beforehand a guy okay so i you know i'm you know mistress i would be honored if you would um i'm really into corporal punishment i would be honored if you would hit me and spit on me i like sissy training i want to be dressed up in a thong you know i like to be pegged whatever it is that would be what's pegging like um Fucked with the strap on. Okay. Right. So like all these things will be made very clear beforehand and then she will kind of, and then a, a submissive will also state their hard limits. So like, I don't like this. This is a no for me. Don't and, step on my face. Right. Like that. Balls. Yeah, exactly. Like I hate that. That would throw me out of the moment because as a dominatrix, you want to be hired. You want to be hired back. Mm-hmm. So if you're not providing enough of what they asked for, they're going to move on to someone else. So it is a business and you do have to provide a, a service. Yeah. Do you, for the people listening who might be hearing this thinking, oh, she degraded herself. She was paid to do these things to these strangers. And, you know, like, let's take a trip inside your head. Like, how did, how did you feel? Do you feel like, was it a feeling or was it just like, I'm doing my job? Like, what would you say to someone who has that kind of like a construct of what sex work uh, is like or what it means? Like, has, like, does that happen? I think that there's a huge stigma around any type of sex work, but of course, but often because it's not analyzed beyond just like, oh yeah, sex workers, they're tragic. So this is just like an assumption that we live with and we accept because we never even stop to consider the alternative for any, for any Wow, a woman with agency? Right. Exactly. It's like, (laughs) what if... You, what if someone, what if a woman likes doing that? What if you like uh, whipping a guy? What if you find, what if you're interested in sexuality? What if you're curious about BDSM and you think it's amazing that someone will give you $300 an hour to just like pee on them when you have to pee anyway? You know what I mean? Like there were, I have to say that of the jobs of my life that I've had that I didn't like and that I felt exploited in, none of them were or sex work because I feel like in the times that I've done sex work has been some of the most well compensated jobs that I've ever had. And then also I was my own boss. So I was able to go in and say, this is what I want to do. This is how much I want to be paid. This is what I, this, this amount of money is not enough. Whereas if you're a waitress or where, if you're working in the media a lot, when I was, when I started out and I was a, a freelance writer and I was being offered like 50 bucks to write an article that would take me like a full day. (laughs) It's like, that's when I feel the most exploited. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Whereas if I'm being paid multiple hundreds of dollars an hour and I and I can negotiate that payment for myself and I feel like I have agency. It's just like, to me, it's the opposite. Feminism should be about, and like whatever female positive, female agency, sex positivity should be about allowing other women to make decisions for themselves Mm -hmm. so it's just so condescending and presumptuous to come in and say like oh no sweetie like you don't want to do that that's degrading Mm -hmm. it's like i let me decide what's degrading for myself Mm -hmm. you know 
We'll have more with Carly in a moment, but first, let's talk about our old friends, ShipStation. Aw, oh, man, ShipStation. So I actually finally made a ShipStation account, and I used our 30-day free trial, of course, uh, which anybody who listens to this podcast is entitled to, because we have some merch on girlboss.com. If you go up to the very top, there's a little link that says shop, and you can see what we have. Shop it. We have some water bottles, and, and we're using ShipStation. hats. Long sleeve shirts, short so sleeve shirts. So cute, so, so cute. We all live in the long sleeve shirts, um, so soft. So ShipStation, if you are selling online, you need to be using. You can integrate it with Shopify, Squarespace, Etsy, or over 75 other popular selling channels. And they basically bring all of your orders into one place. And you can use UPS, USPS, or FedEx, and kind of game them to find out which one has the cheapest shipping for you to keep your margins high. And right now, you can try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use my promo code GIRLBOSS. Don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GIRLBOSS. That's S-H-I-P. S-T-A-T-I-O-N dot com. Enter girl boss. Ship station. Make, Make ship, ship happen. happen. Girl boss is also made possible by you. Who are you? That's a really existential question. I don't expect you to have the answer to that, but you probably have some information about like where you live, how old you are. Like podcasts are a little bit of like this dark, thing where like we don't have the same kind of data on who's listening to this show that we would like to and if you love girl boss radio and want to allow us help us really to customize what we're doing for you take our survey you can go to listenerq.com slash girl boss that's l-i-s-t-e-n-e-r-q.com forward slash girl boss and take a short survey And just give us direct feedback on the show. We'd love to hear what you think. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. One more time, that's listenerq.com slash girlboss. And now, back to Carly. Once Vice got involved, Sledever started gaining eyes and building momentum. I asked her to talk about how that partnership came to fruition. The TV show is a 10-part documentary series. It's like a comedy documentary series on Viceland's cable channel. And it explores sexual behavior. And the sort of goal is to approach topics and desires and people with, you know, under the umbrella of sexuality that are often considered sort of like gross or taboo or stigmatized to some degree and go in and sort of revisit, find some joy, find fun in desires or behaviors that were uh, other about otherwise be considered a little bit what kinds <laughs> of what kinds of unsavory behaviors so things for example we do one speaking of sex work we do an episode about like cam girls so i think as we we're talking about there's a lot of stigma around any woman who's like selling her body or selling sexuality at all so we find you know i we always intended to i make the show with a woman named adrian mergia we've been making the show since it was a web series we always want to find subjects and people that we can find joy in so it's not like a negative show i feel like so often like sex is portrayed in the media as like moral panic like how could this be bad for (laughs) for sex and romance connection where we we find cam girls who we think like are entrepreneurial creating their own businesses around this like making money enjoy their jobs and we just are like all right what is the positive side of this industry um we do okay there's another episode about the first episode aired last week and it was about happy endings for women. Like how come like there's so many sexual services that are available to men? Like you can get a happy ending massage, like you can get an escort, but like why can't as a woman, it's almost impossible to just go get a happy ending massage. We, I like <laughs> traveled the earth all and back again, trying to find someone to give me a happy ending massage. It's really hard because they always want to make it into like this therapeutic thing. Cause I think that's what women want where it's like, it's a medical thing. We there's an episode about the cannabis industry and it's sort of a new and growing industry within the cannabis culture of making female pleasure products like weed lube, weed aphrodisiacs, things like that. Um, there's an ex- episode about like luxury sex products and like the world's most expensive orgasm, like gold vibrators and Dita Von Teese teaching me how to like dress up in lingerie and look expensive. I mean, 
What's pretty the, fun. Is there like a weirdest thing on the list of weird things or is that like not a fair thing to, to rank? Um, I would say... It's like an unhealthy question. No, I think it's fair. I think the, the, the episode in which I was the most like <laughs> triggered, I would say, or just surprised, we did an episode about monster fantasies. So people who have sexual fantasies about like werewolves, monsters, aliens, and it's just like so much bigger than you think. You know, there is a... a romance erotic fiction genre that is one of like some of the books are top selling on amazon it's like multi-million dollar industry of these women writing these erotic novels where they're like implanted with alien eggs and like raped by werewolves and there's like huge companies making dragon dildos and the craziest thing is that these toys and these books and these fantasies are primarily being marketed to and sold to women so it's women who have these fantasies uh, we met these make people who make a sex toy that's all about um, it's a dildo that implants alien eggs into your vagina, and they sell thousands of these all over like the world. Like fake ones, like that. Yeah, they're made of silicone. It's called an ovipositor. Whoa! Alien egg implantation fetish is a thing, and way more people are into it than you realize. <laughs> wow! So that was my wow. mo- the most sort of like out there one we did. Wow. Definitely. So career-wise, I mean, I find it so fascinating that you are a college dropout who, like, started a blog and now has a TV show on Viceland and writes a column for Vogue and, like, has this book with Grand Central. Like, it's it shouldn't be surprising, but it, it it's surprising in the same way that it's surprising that, like, I started a company and dropped out of college and all that stuff. Um, yeah, like, what do you attribute, like, you know, because anyone can start a blog. Like, what do you attribute your your success to? Like, what, what was there a turning point for you where it became more legitimate, where you were like, okay, I'm going to take this seriously? I think there is a variety of factors. I think that... I mean, obviously, with any type of success, we understand that luck is part of it. I understand that I started a blog at a time when almost no one had a blog, so there was, like, very little competition. You know, it's like it's not like starting a blog now where there's a million, <laughs> million people yeah. who are doing it. Um, I also think that, for whatever reason, my willingness to be sort of embarrassingly transparent or vulnerable in my writing has helped me in a way. I think that, you know, we live in this age of oversharing, but I do think that that if when we allow ourselves to be like truly vulnerable and when we are like the most naked, that it really creates an opportunity for connection. And I feel like it's in my writing when I have been the most weak or vulnerable is when I've gotten the, the most response. Like I remember this one time I wrote this article, one of my earlier Vogue columns was about being dumped and just like how it was genuinely traumatic for me and how I couldn't get over it and how it was just like the worst how how until you really experience heartbreak you think you're susceptible you think you're like above it mm-hmm. that you don't relate to people when they're going through a breakup you're like mm-hmm. get over it oh, move on like on babies. to the next <laughs> yeah yeah and and I just wrote about that experience and it was like one of the things that I feel like was most that I got the most actual physical response to just like emails from random people and I was like okay it kind of clocked for me that you you can you don't always have to put you don't have to like I think we live in a culture where mythologizing is huge and it's like make yourself look like the coolest and happiest and funnest on Instagram like market your relationship you know what I mean and it's like I don't know if that's actually the way that you really connect with people in the end at the end of the day I think we're learning that it seems like there's a big conversation about that now where our values are like we're questioning these platforms that have created these like boxes for us to perceive ourselves and like the world around us and our lifestyle and what's normal and uh curate our vulnerabilities like through right like it's so interesting like is it to me like is it vulnerable to be like I look like crap today and like put that on Instagram because it's like you're still like you're still like sharing like there's a there's this, there's like a benefit from it uh-huh. that maybe isn't as earnest as like vulnerability really should be. You know what I mean? And it's, totally. yeah, it's a weird like cycle. Like when really hot girls post pictures of themselves doing like a face mask and it's like, this is, there's currency 
in that too. Wow, where you're, you're like so exposed, right? Yeah, it <laughs> oh feels God. calculated Your in soul. this annoying way. It's yeah, on the line. That's annoying for me. Yeah. Wait. So have you have you been to sex parties? I have. They're not. I don't think they're really. My, I'm not very good at them. Yeah. What's that like? Do you okay. just are you like a fly on the wall? Are you an introvert? Are you like an introverted slut? I think that they really. I don't know if I'm introvert. Maybe like I. Oh, it's so confusing. I mean, I went to them at first. The first one I went to, I wrote, went because I was going to write about it for Vogue and a friend who goes to them all the time invited me. And I was really nervous because... Which one? Was it, does it have a name? It's called Top Floor. Huh. And it's sort of, it's in New York. It's an invite only. I mean, um, it's supposed to be secretive, but they banned me for life because I wrote about it. So like, fuck them, actually. It's at the Thompson Hotel. <laughs> it's, the, it's the whole top floor. And the organizers are assholes because... I didn't even give out any of the personal information about it, but they were like, you can never come back because the journalists infiltrated, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, there was about 100 people. I was very nervous. I'm not an exhibitionist. So I think that even if you're someone who likes the idea of stranger sex or casual sex or even like a threesome, that the idea of the difference between that and having sex in a room with a ton of people watching is, is there's a huge yeah. gap between those two things, right? Are the lights like low? I think the lights are pretty low. <laughs> I got too drunk. I sort of passed out. I took oh, an ecstasy no. pill. Passed oh, no. out. Yeah, like I, literally I was awoken at some point. I'd passed out on the bed and they were like, excuse sweetie, um, people need to have sex here. So like <laughs> you have to lay on the floor. <laughs> Banned. Yeah, I know. It was like, I just don't like the idea of having sex in front of people. Um, in, and it, it feels very performative to me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, does, it, does that seem appealing to you? Um, no. No. Maybe fun to watch or something, but that's, like, not what you get invited to do from what I understand. You can't. Like, um, they're very open about voyeurism is okay, um, so you don't have to participate if you don't want to. Because some people want to be watched. Like, that's a huge portion of the people that are going clearly want to be watched. That's why they're, they want to have sex in public. <laughs> but I just am not – there's a, a lack of intimacy that I don't like about it. Because even if you're someone who likes the idea of having sex with someone you don't know that well – there is huge potential for intimacy with casual in a casual sexual encounter, mm -hmm. which I don't think is true for me in a situation like that, like a crazy sex party group sex thing. Mm -hmm. What do you think about polyamory? I think that it's interesting that as a culture, we're beginning to the conversation around it has expanded hugely, and that books like Sex at Dawn, which is about how you know we're naturally biologically non-monogamous. It was a huge bestseller, which means that there's like a ton of people that are interested in that conversation. I don't think polyamory is for me at all. First of all, who is I don't even have time. I have one boyfriend. Yeah, how do you even get attracted? My time. Like, how do you even find more than one person at a time to like want to touch? Like, that's me. I was just like, ew. <laughs> I'm just like, I couldn't cheat for that reason. It's just like, I don't know. Like, I'm it's like so rare that you lucky want to, to find one at a time. Right. Like I'm happy with one. The idea of having multiple romantic sexual relationships at once to me seems so time consuming because mm -hmm. like, how do you have a job and exercise <laughs> and like, yeah. you know, keep your house clean and also manage more than one person's sexual and emotional needs? Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. That's not how I want to spend my time. <laughs> <laughs> One's enough. I know. Carly's debut book, Slut Ever, Dispatches from a Sexually Autonomous Woman in a Post-Shame World, was released just yesterday. I asked her to talk to us more about the book and why she calls it a slut manifesto. It was difficult to write, and I think it's difficult as well because, you know, there's things in there that I wouldn't have talked about in my writing, like some of like the sugar baby stuff and some of the more involved Dom, Dominatrix stuff. I didn't write about him. There's something about like validating about a book where you're like, I can say like dirty or shit in here because it's in a book. So it's like legitimize. It's just like the book itself is legitimizing. Mm -hmm. But then you have to think about like how people are going to interpret that. Like my family's going to read that, et cetera, Ugh. et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Managing the family. And at some point, I think my mom was like, You mentioned your dad more than me. And I'm like, Wait, what? what? Stop. Like, don't listen to my interviews, please. Yeah, totally. Okay. There's a couple of questions I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. One is about your girl boss moment. And a girl boss moment is kind of our just cheesy way of saying like the moment in your week where you were doing something for yourself, even if it was other people were included or it was an obligation. It was like you felt like you were 
like living your truth, doing something for the right reason. It could be a bubble bath. It could be like going back to college. What was your most recent girl boss moment? Hmm. Let's see. I, this seems like a bad one, but I, <laughs> I don't know if this is true. I, I'm not the best self-care person and I've been living in Koreatown in LA and I've been going by myself to those insane Korean spas where they make you get into weird Scientology scrubs when you walk in and getting these like, body scrub things where they scrub down your whole body. It's so painful. And then getting those insane Korean massages where the woman walks on your back mm-hmm. and it has changed my life a little bit because I have... How of, often do you go? I went twice in the past week wow. and I have like sort of chronic lower back pain and it's really helping me. It's changing my life because having low pain in your lower back is... I'm just not good at fixing it, you know, and I don't know how to fix it and it's been really bad. So I am trying to dedicate more time to relaxation, things like massage, acupuncture. I know that sounds like a bougie thing to say, but I think I need it if you're in pain yeah it's not that bougie <laughs> yeah. do you ask for a happy ending at the korean uh, spa i feel like the, 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 that it, you actually if you paid enough you might be able to get it but i did not oh, that's good i don't think i'd want a happy um, ending from those women they're quite harsh they're so harsh <laughs> they're wearing like weird laundry and like a wet room it's so weird okay what does success mean to you like we talk a lot about this concept or construct or you know kind of nebulous term that is like is it financial is it personal is it relationships is it a combination is it none of them is it spiritual what does success mean to you what does that word mean I feel like success genuinely means for me being in the very luxury position of being able to choose your work for the most part right so I don't think that it means never have having financial stress because I think that even successful people have moments of financial stress I don't think it means never having to do anything you don't want to because I think that at the core work, a lot of times meaning means having to, you know, not everything is fun. But I think increasingly as the years go by, I feel very grateful for the fact that I have to do less and less things where it feels like I'm just someone's bitch and I'm having to do work that I feel is soulless mm-hmm. simply to survive. Now, I success means for me being able to work on projects for the majority of the time that I'm really passionate about, give add value to my life that I feel proud of. Um, and still sometimes I have to make stupid commercials and have to write things for money or, you know, we all have to do things for money, but being able to spend the majority of my time on things I'm that I'm interested in is what I consider success. And that sometimes means sacrificing bigger paychecks mm-hmm. for like, yeah, creative control or, creative fulfillment that's great thank you carly thank you jericho thank you sophia thank you everybody for listening to another episode of girl boss radio if you're not listening to jericho's show self-service please listen to me it's so good you can find it in uh, the podcast app or anywhere itunes are found subscribe subscribe to this show subscribe to her show and For more cool stuff, go to girlboss.com.